Hello and welcome to the Roots and Foundations podcast. I'm Jeremy Manuel. And I'm Nicole Carlin. Today we are going to be tackling the tricky book of Judges, which is kind of a mess of a book if you've ever actually read it or tried to read it. There's just a lot of things that are not very pleasant about the book. It's kind of violent and disturbing and it's leaves you wondering what in the world is it trying to portray? You know, is this you know, these examples that we're supposed to follow, are they examples of what we're not supposed to follow? What's going on here? Why are these even in here? Yeah. Why yeah. does this not have an R rating on it? Yeah, the, the Book of Judges pretty much single-handedly, not that it entirely is just that this book, but it, it shows that the Bible is not really family-friendly. It is not rated G or PG. It is a little bit rougher than that. And yet, this is stories that were intended for the community to be aware of. Yeah. Um, so definitely, it's interesting, the Bible Project put a warning uh, label on this uh, lesson and said, be warned, it's disturbing and violent, tragic tale. And I think that that is not a bad thing to kind of put a warning on this, that if you are uncomfortable with violence or sexual assault or murder, the, the, this book Definitely has a trigger, all that. trigger warning. Yes. Yeah, just be aware um, as we kind of walk through the book of Judges that the, these things are in there. So we're coming off the book of Judges. Or Joshua. Uh, yeah. Joshua, <laughs> not Judges. We're in Judges. We're coming off the book of Joshua. And so Joshua left off. They've conquered most of the promised land. They've had some victories. They've divided the land. And Joshua kind of ended off with this kind of farewell speech like Moses. Because, you know, again, Joshua was constantly compared to Moses. And now we are entering into the period after Joshua. Joshua has died. Israel is supposed to kind of continue because there's some places in the promised land they haven't quite taken over and gotten rid of the, the influence there. But that's where the book of Judges starts off in saying that they kind of failed to do that. They failed to get rid of the influence of the Canaanites. And that kind of sets the tone for the whole book because it's this idea that the Canaanites continually kind of corrupt Israel and Israel winds up following the gods of the Canaanites and that leads them to not good places. Yeah. And there's this idea that, again, that God was using Israel to cleanse the land of the Canaanite sin, particularly their sexual sin and their sacrifice, sacrificing of children to their, their gods. And so the idea is, is that they were to be a holy example of what God really wanted, what the one true God really wanted out of people. But instead, they sort of get sucked into the surrounding nation's ways of doing things to the point that we're going to find that by the end of the book of Judges, that Israel is not any different than the peoples they were called to kind of evict and show a different way. And the interesting thing about judges is we don't want to think of a judge in a courtroom sitting behind the bench in their black robe with their gavel, that the word judge here is going to mean sort of a tribal chieftain or a, a, a leader. And that and that's sort of the image you have is, is sort of somebody who's in power and guiding the people, not so much of a law distinguisher. No, um, like a military leader who winds up freeing his people from oppression, because that's kind of the cycle of, mm -hmm. of judges is you get... You know, this idea that they've been corrupted by sin or, you know, not just the Canaanites. I mean, we all have our own and Israel has displayed time and time again. They don't need the Canaanites to reject God. So it's not even that you can fully blame it on th them on that. But it's just that idea of 
add religious culture that's that's very much anti the god that they're following plus their own proclivity their own impulse to reject god and you get a mess and so they sin they get oppressed by the people that are around them that oppression that you know like whether it be taking over and people raiding their food or, or whatever's going on leads them to kind of cry out to God, to repent, to say, you know, these gods that we've been following from from the Canaanites, they're not helping us at all. So they actually remember God and turn back to him. And he brings one of these judges, one of these military leaders to kind of protect Israel, to fight the force that's oppressing them and to achieve victory, which leads to peace for a time. And in that peace, they forget God again. They go back to worshiping the gods of Canaan and doing whatever they please. And the cycle starts again. And that's just kind of what happens throughout the book of Judges is this cycle of sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, and peace. This this kind of just goes on and on. You know, it's this idea that once they get delivered, they just go back to and we're doing thinking whatever. a time period of about 100 to 300 years it's yeah. not specifically laid out in scripture we don't have a clear yeah because part of the problem is all the judges are all over the place so, you know like they they're from different tribes they're from different parts so like some of we them don't, overlap yeah we don't know what ones if they do overlap like which ones do like they don't really kind of refer to each other they're kind of just self-contained. You do get Gideon has a son and he causes trouble, you know, but, but for the most part, they're, they're fairly like, we don't get the genealogies that we see other, other places where, oh, well, this person's connected to that person or, you know, we don't get kind of those details here. Right. They're just kind of spread out. And there's definitely a clear sense that with the death of Joshua, sort of that lineage of leadership gets broken mm-hmm. and we don't get a kind of who comes exactly before each of these judges per se, and then who immediately follows them. There, there's some of that, but it's it's much murkier. There's mm-hmm. gaps in the story. And so we really just don't have a lot of details. What's interesting is when we don't get those details, the point is, is it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Because what's more important is understanding that these various judges, these leaders, on an overarching flow, start out being fairly good, but as time goes on, things get worse. Um, it's not a it's not a exact arc in that way. Yeah. But there's definitely this descent towards complete mayhem that we kind of see culminating in chapter 17 through 21. So we you know we start out with some interesting stories in chapters three through five. If you've never read the book of Judges, I highly encourage you to read it. it, it only because a lot of times people come across these when they're doing like a read the Bible in a year thing, or I will tell you that they are very rarely preached on. They are very rarely discussed. And as far as I know, there are no flannel graphs to cover the <laughs> events happening in these books. And so they're, they're surprised. Like you're kind of like, what? And uh, I actually uh, worked with the Bible study and we were reading through a novelization of the Bible, which covered the stories of Ehud and Deborah. And there were multiple people in the Bible study that came forward and were like, those are not in the Bible. And we had to open up the book of Judges and show them these stories and say, these stories are in the Bible. And there's a purpose to these stories. They just aren't the easily digestible, like, here's the application from this, you know, here's the story of Ehud. And the application is... Don't make thrones with incorporated toiletry systems and always be a left-handed swordsman. Yeah. You'll have to read it to understand why those two things come up. But yeah, so it's a 
again, these are stories that help us understand something in the greater context of the book of Judges, but standing alone, they are kind of confusing. In the story of Deborah, Deborah is a, is a female judge. She's a female leader and she partners with a, a guy named Barak and they're kind of doing battle and the guy that they're pursuing hides in this woman's tent and the this the the bad guy is sort of hiding and and the woman Jael covers him with a blanket and is going to get him some beverages and and then when he's all relaxed she drives a tent spike through his head and and brings about the victory there and and you know so what's the take home message there it's basically the wild west yes. israelite style you know that that it's law is kind of in anybody's hands yes whoever whoever has the opportunity and one of the interesting things that happens as we go through this is at different moments, people are empowered by God's spirit. And that does not, and, and that's an important thing. And it can become confusing because you can read these and be like, well, if God's spirit was in these people, these people must be good people of God that God is using. And what's really clear in the book of Judges is just because God empowers someone to complete a task does not mean he's endorsing their behavior or their choices, but rather that in this particular case with the story of Jael and Sisera, Sisera, God wanted to stop. And so, you know, God permits Jael to to complete the task. And in other places, God is giving people power to do things, but he's not necessarily saying this is a good thing to do. And that really is an important thing in reading the book of Judges is that this is not a proscript or excuse me prescriptive book this is not a book that tells you how to live this is a book that describes what people did and that's an important thing to remember particularly as you read through judges yes because these people are, are very flawed and and i think i mean part of the struggle i think of reading judges is partly just cultural differences we aren't in a I mean United States in general, we're not in a place where we're dealing with constant warfare. We don't have Canada coming in and raiding parts of our states. You know, like it just isn't, it just isn't where we are in, in terms of life. And so the idea of all this violence and all this stuff, it's so far removed from, you know, even though we do wars, but all of our wars are off in other places. I mean, the closest thing we have is crime. And even then, you know, it, it's, it's not quite the same. So it's, so it's kind of hard to kind of grasp this idea of violence and people coming into our countries and, and raiding them and, and the idea of militarily taking that back and, and standing up to that force. Like, that's what a lot of these are about. And so there is this kind of violent nature to it. And and it's kind of tough for us, but I don't know that that would have necessarily been as tough for people dealing with it. Yeah, um, I think for a lot of history, these stories would have kind of rang a little bit more close to home. Yeah. Um, and understanding the idea of how desperate people can be when they feel like their livelihoods are threatened. Like in the story of Gideon, you have somebody who he's thresh, threshing his wheat in a wine press, which means he's doing it out of sight, which is not a convenient or easy way to do it. He's doing it because he's afraid of being seen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're at the place where just getting your food in, you're hiding in that process, you're under a lot of pressure and you're not feeling secure. And so God interacts with Gideon and speaks to him. And the the story of Gideon is probably the... Gideon and Samuel, or excuse me, Samson, are probably the most familiar stories. But they're often ones that were taught without a lot of context and that these are really stories that really should be understood in the greater context. And just even the idea that they're human, you know, even 
figures like Moses and, and Abraham who don't do nearly the kind of questionable stuff. Well, at least most, most for the most part as them, like they're very human as well. And I think there's just that tendency in the church to, to whitewash people, to put them on pedestals, to say, Oh no, they were just faithful men of God and, and they, everything they did was right. And that's not really the case. You know, I mean, Gideon, he does have faith, but he struggles with that faith to begin with. Like the idea of like the fleece and, you know, putting it out there to try to see if what God was actually telling him, you know, he made these kind of requests of like, he'd put a fleece out and one night it needed to be the, the fleece was supposed to be dry, but the grass around it wet. And the other, you know, he, that wasn't enough. So the other one, he did it and needed the reverse to happen where the, the ground would be dry, but the, the, the fleece sopping wet. So like he struggled with faith, but God worked with, worked with that. I don't think taking too strong of a view negatively or too strong of a view positively of this is a good thing. It's just the idea that Gideon did what he felt like he needed to get confirmation and And remember in that in that flow with Gideon, like one of the parts of the story that sometimes gets attention but other times doesn't is the fact that he goes and, and knocks over uh, in the night uh, uh, you know, an altar to Baal and he's this idea is that all the interaction with Gideon is this tension that the Israelites have come into Canaan that there were these false gods, that the Israelites were to wipe these false gods out. But, you know, if Gideon's going into the village at night and knocking over the the altar to Baal, they're clearly not obeying the Torah. They're clearly not obeying the instructions that Moses and Joshua gave them. And so they're under oppression and attack from the Midianites because of that, you know, that cycle that Jeremy talked about of sin and then oppression and then repentance. And so Gideon is sort of this force of bringing to attention that they need to repent. And so as he kind of goes along through his career, he's trying to do what God tells him to do, but he has some missteps and he ends up at the end while refusing to take on the role of kingship, he and his son, he unfortunately creates a, a, a sort of halfway idol, taking the gold and making an ephod that people then end up worshiping. So he doesn't send them back to the Baals, but he also doesn't help bring them back to a full uh, understanding of who the Lord is, which then sets them up through the next chapters of 10 and 12 with Jephthah and his leadership, which he really doesn't understand who the God of Israel is. And that leads him into trouble, which then sets us up in chapters 13 through 16 with Samson. Yeah. And Samson's just kind of a hot mess. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I've never really understood Samson, like, and how you can really whitewash him too well, because he just does not clean up very well. You know, he's he's basically, a, if you've ever heard of the Nazarite vow, like, he he's born to his parents kind of miraculously, yes. I believe. And because of that, they are told to give him the Nazarite, which means he's not allowed to cut his hair. He's not allowed to eat anything from... Uh, a grapevine, so no grapes, no wine, no no anything like that. He's he's completely cut off from from anything wine related, even grapes. And so, like that's how he's he's raised. And so, it's not based on his impeccable moral character. These are things from his birth that he is doing. And because of this, he's raised up as this um, deliverer with great strength. And yet, he's kind of a ladies' man. And goes for the Canaanite women, and yeah, and that gets him in the trouble. He he has this real strong sense of entitlement and arrogance, and yeah. just and violence, and he just kind of he he's just kind of constantly poking the bear and looking for trouble. Or the lion. Yeah, the lion, and he ends up with this whole situation with Delilah, 
where his foolishness and his bad decision-making results in his eyes being gouged out and being taken prisoner by the Philistines. And then later, he he kind of has this last moment of triumph, but it's he dies in the process of knocking down the, the temple and killing all the the people there. And it's just not in any way, per se, super helpful to moving the Israelites closer to God, that yeah. that his ability to lead the people is really sidelined by his selfishness because yeah. he's always thinking about Samson first. Yeah, he doesn't really, I mean, like in this story, you don't really see him leading anybody. It's mostly just him and doing kind of whatever he pleases, you know, whether it's, you know, even the whole story that I think is, is fairly common of him eating the, the honeycomb out of the, the dead lion. Like, that would have been a big no-no because you're not supposed to be touching dead things. Like, so it's this idea that, 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 Samson is all about Samson. You know, God's okay. You know, if he wants me to, you know, kill some Philistines, I'm all for that. But he's not really presented as this um, very holy or pious or even trying to be pious individual, where at least like Jephthah, as much as he didn't understand, like there at least seemed to be some kind of remorse over his remorse or even just the idea that he was vowing something to God in the first place. He accidentally vows, like carelessly vows some whatever's out of his house comes whenever Eh, whatever comes out of his house first when he returns, which happens to be his daughter. Um, but yeah, but at least he's doing things like that. With Samson, you don't really see it. You see it kind of at the end whenever he's like, God, give me one last chance. And then he brings the house down quite literally Yeah, all over everyone. Yeah, I wonder if that's where that saying comes from. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, and and so this this idea is that the judges just become considerably more corrupt. And, um, and you were speaking of Abimelech. Yeah, Abimelech's Gideon's son, and he is kind of just terrible. He kills all the other brothers and half-brothers that he has and sets himself up over mm-hmm. over one of the towns. And it, it just goes bad. The, well, the one there was one surviving son of jo- Jothath, I believe, or something like that, that kind of calls a curse down on not just Abimelech, but the people who have decided to follow this guy because he's nothing more than... Just a, a bully. A bully, a, a kind of mob boss where it's like, well, follow me and it, it'll go good for you. But if you don't, then you'll kind of end up at the bottom of an ocean or a, a river with, you know, cement blocks if they did that then. You know, like that's yeah. kind of, you know, and so it's just that he's just kind of this big black stain right in the middle of the book almost. It's like, ugh. Yeah. He's not following God at all and yeah. just kind of an awful, awful and so basically chapters 3 through 16 of Judges are, again, descriptive, not prescriptive. We're not supposed to do the things that we see in there, but instead we're to understand that what this is showing, and this phrase keeps showing up throughout the book of Judges, which is in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's really what you're seeing is that people, what they're doing is not what God is asking of them. It's whatever seems good to them in the moment. And that brings us to the final two stories, chapters 17 through 18 is this kind of story. There's this guy, Micah, he builds his own little private tabernacle. Yeah, and builds his own idol. And puts it in there. But then this, the tribe of Dan comes along and says, you know what? We're stealing you. We're, ste- we're, we're stealing this. Yeah. And we're taking it for, and you're going to come and be our a private priest with the private. Well, no, no, no. Because no. what take? happens is Micah builds this this, right. this tabernacle of his own with this idol. And it happens to this Levite comes and wanders by and he hires this Levite as his own personal priest. So he's like, um, he's thrilled because like, I've got my own tabernacle, I've got my own idol, and now I've got my own priest. So that just legitimizes this whole. Um, I don't need to go anywhere anymore. I yeah, need to the, stay yeah, home. He's great. Like, 
Uh, but then that whole, then Dan comes along and they convince the Levite to kind of, you know, basically like, well, hey, you can be the priest for one man or you can be priest for a whole group of people. Like, what are you going to pick? Well, the Levite could do math. And so he went with the bigger group. And that causes this kind of conflict between Micah and and Dan. And then Dan goes off and destroys his whole city just because it looks good to them. And... It's yeah. just, again, continued mess. No, no one's doing anything they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Not one person in that entire story. So if you're reading it and going, well, why why is this Levite doing this? He shouldn't be. You're right. You're right. He absolutely should not be doing that. They shouldn't be doing what they're Nobody should be doing what they're doing, and yet they are. Yeah. And then that leads us to the very last story in Judges and the very worst story in Judges with this chapter 19 through 21, which once again, we end up with a Levite. Um, and again, the Levites are supposed to be the priests. Yes. They're, which is really interesting. The These workers are, of the temple. They're the supposed to display. know the law. They're supposed to help people understand it. They're supposed to be enacting it. And instead, we have a Levite with a concubine. They end up in this town square. Yeah, basically, the concubine leaves and returns to his her father's house. The Levite chases after her, brings it, convinces her to come back with him eventually, and winds up staying overnight at this one. I can't remember where it exactly is. I think it's it's somewhere near the tribe of Benjamin, because that's what. Yeah. That's what the bad stuff. And they're hanging out in the town square, and this gentleman's like, "No, no, no! This is a bad thing. You don't want to be here. Come into my house. It's not safe." And the men of the city, kind of similar to Sodom and Gomorrah, which that's not an accident. This is supposed to remind you of Sodom and Gomorrah. The men of the town come beating on the door of this this man's house and say, give us the the man. We want to have sex with him. So it's it's a wonderful gang rape moment where you have, again, the repetition of... As bad as Sodom and Gomorrah was, here we are again. This is happening in the promised land in Israel with Israelites doing this. This isn't the Philistines. This isn't the Midianites. This isn't the Israelites. And the Levite comes up with a great plan, and he opens the door and throws his concubine And I believe the... Virgin daughter, perhaps, Virgin the daughter, host. too, the host. Like, yeah, it's, again, you know, that echo of Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, well, no, don't take my, you know, but I've got daughters. Only this time it actually happens because I guess because the Levite's not an angel coming it's it's just a, a flawed guy. human being then where they get sent out the concubine gets you know assaulted s- yeah and basically ends up Killed. on the doorstep dead in the morning and the Levite basically opens the door steps over her and says come on let's get going <laughs> which is this great yeah. moment of deep compassion obviously being sarcastic and he he de- oh my goodness she's dead and so then he comes up with this plan basically just to kind of show like how evil i mean it's it's a wacky it sounds like something out of a serial killer movie you know he chops his concubine, concubine up into 12 pieces sends it to all the tribes of israel to kind of show like this is what you know israel this is what benjamin the tribe of benjamin has done and i'm assuming the parts come with a letter explaining yeah, what they're receiving yes and the people are the, in essence israel is horrified yeah and so they go on the war path, and it, it's it's a, it's the first civil war in Israel. Yeah. Um, and they the other tribes nearly wipe out Benjamin. Yeah. And so. which then leads to them having to steal women to somehow help repopulate Benjamin. Yeah. Which or, I'm I'm actually blanking on why they ended up doing that, but. Yeah, it, it's, it's... It's all bad ideas lead to more bad ideas, basically, because at no point are they stopping and coming to God 
repenting of their sin, recognizing their their sinfulness. Instead, as it says repeatedly in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if we remember, the idea is that God is to be their king. Mm -hmm. So in saying that there was no king in Israel, it's this kind of twofold concept because God hasn't abandoned Israel. Israel has abandoned God. And by not acknowledging God as their king, they're left to just come up with their own idea, which again, the other remez or the other remembrance is going back to the Garden of Eden and this idea of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that Adam and Eve take this idea, this right to decide what is good and what is evil in their own minds. And they reject God's instruction on that. And, and so they end up falling into evil. And we see this happening here in the book of Judges. They come to the promised land. It's this land flowing with milk and honey. It's this amazing opportunity. And yet, instead of looking to God to tell them what is good and evil, instead, they try to do it on their own. And that's what we get when we get the book of Judges. Yeah, yeah. The saying, two wrongs don't make a right, neither do 50 wrongs make or a right. Or 100 or 150. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that's pretty much judges. This is basically that, like, yeah, you guys have done so much wrong and... And that's sort of the punchline that the Bible Project points out is that what is so sad about the book of Judges is in Joshua, they get to the promised land. Hooray! And then over the course of this couple hundred years that Judges covers they, in essence, become the Canaanites. They mm -hmm. become the very people that God wanted them to move out because their their sinful behavior was appalling and was not acceptable. Temple prostitution and child sacrifice and adultery and murder, th these are not okay. And yet here we see God's theoretically holy people by the end of the book. Not being very holy at all. Not being holy at all. So yeah, so that's Judges, as, as uplifting and positive as, as that may seem, you might be able to get a sense of why it's not preached on all <laughs> that much. Yeah, I imagine most pastors are like, what am I going to say <laughs> about that? And yeah, maybe after the children's sermon, we'll excuse the children Yeah, <laughs> kind of thing. And it's interesting that the Bible Project doesn't even touch that last story in any kind of detail. They just basically put a, a white port of how it says very distort disturbing and that is the point yeah that's how they kind of end that video is just like it's, it's disturbing and yeah and it we're is not going to go into the details of it and we however decided to tackle it here on our podcast partly because it is one of those stories that people read and they just don't know what to make yeah. of especially if there isn't a context in the greater flow of scripture yeah it's not telling you to go cut up your concubine or have a concubine or reenact the end of the movie seven, you know, no. none of those things. No, you're not supposed to take foxes and tie fire to their tails to set your neighbor's fields on fire. You're not supposed to sacrifice your children, make gold ephods, nail people through the head with tent spikes. No. None of those things. So yeah, really um, recognize that judges is not a how to, it's a how not to. Yeah. Um, and also just if it's a not in our situation, like we're not they're not oppressing. You're not oppressed in any kind of militarily no. meaningful way. And no, and it's interesting. Um, my friend Christy, who is a missionary in uh, Rwanda, has very dear friends just over the border in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which in many ways is functioning like the nation of Israel at this point in history. It's a lot of tribal chieftains, warlords, uh, militias. And regularly we get updates asking for prayer for this pastor and his family because – 
their village is being overrun by this militia. So they have to run into the jungle and hide. They're hiding in the jungle and they're running out of food. And so then they have to see if they can go to this place and get food. And then they come back and they've heard that their village is burned down. But when they get back, it's not. And so this un- instability for them, this story, it, it, you know, th- there's a lot of things that are familiar. What's interesting is that as a pastor and his family, they're really trying to hold on to their call to be faithful in the midst of the chaos, unlike the nation of Israel at this time. Yeah. So. So yeah. So that's judges, and then next week we'll be tackling. This will be actually out of English order. Um, instead of going to the book of Ruth, which is what we would have in in your Bibles, in if our you're English looking here. Bibles, any translation that we have that would be in English, following the the Hebrew order, the Tanakh order, the next one will actually be First Samuel. So that'll be where we head next, which kind of follows the last judge of sort in Samuel. So that is what we will tackle next time. So see you then.